Well, we're going to have the rest of our main barbel reading now. So we pick it up at 1 Kings 15, verse 25. And we'll take it all the way through to 1634. And you'll notice now these are a number of northern kingdoms. So you might like just to check what is the measure of these kings. And we go from uh, chapter 15, verse 25, says this. <coughs> Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel for two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Basha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Basha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. For Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibbethon. So Basha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And as soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to his servant Ahijah, the Shilonite. It was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned, and that he made Israel to sin, and because of the anger to which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha, the son of Ahijah, began to reign over all Israel at Terzah, and he reigned for 24 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. And the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Basha, saying, Since I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam, and have made my people Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, behold, I will utterly sweep away Basha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Anyone belonging to Basha who dies in the city, the dog shall eat, and any one of his who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Now the rest of the acts of Basha and what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Basha slept with his fathers and was buried at Terzah, and Ella his son reigned in his place. Moreover, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Basha and his house, both because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, began to reign over Israel in Terzah, and he reigned for two years. But his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. When he was at Terzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household of Terzah, Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. When he began to reign, as soon as he seated himself on his throne, he struck down all the house of Basha. He did not leave him a single male of his relatives or his friends, 
Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Basha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha of Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah his son, that they sinned, and that they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned for seven days in Terza. Now the troops were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. And the troops who were encamped heard it, said, Zimri has conspired and he has killed the king. Therefore all Israel made Omri the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. So Omri went up from Gibbethon and all Israel with him, and they besieged Terza. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died because of his sins that he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and for his sin that he committed, making Israel to sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the conspiracy that he made, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri overcame the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginath. So Tibni died, and Omri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for 12 years. For six years he reigned in Terza. He, brought, he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer, for two talents of silver, and he fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria, after the name of Shemur, the owner of the hill. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri that he did and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son reigned in his place. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Esbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord the God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his day, Hiel of Beth built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest, Sigub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Well, keep that passage open. We're going to have a look at that together. Just to say there's an outline of where we're going in the service sheet, so do use that if that's helpful to you. And at the end as is usually the case, there'll be an opportunity for any questions or comments. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is good, truthful and sovereign. And therefore we pray as your people, as we reflect on your word, that we would uh, listen to it, to trust it and obey it, and therefore vindicate who you are. And we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Treason. Harry's, Harry plots Prince's murder. Prince Harry has been caught conspiring to murder eight-year-old Prince George. The plot came to light earlier this morning when a palace official raised the alarm. Harry has been arrested on suspicion of murder and has been held by Scotland Yard while further investigations take place. Although the palace has declined from making a comment, sources close to Her Majesty have disclosed that this is nothing less than an attempt by Harry to move one step closer to the throne. Now, you might think that this is a bit far-fetched, that Harry would plot to murder Prince George. But plots like this wouldn't have been unusual several hundred years ago. The desire to get to the throne has been the cause of many a murder plot. And it's one of the main weaknesses of a ruling monarchy. It's unstable. And what we read in today's passage in Wong uh, Kings can fuel such a view. And the problem there is not only instability, as we go from one king to the next to the next. I mean, we witness nothing less than nine changes to the throne in these chapters. The problem's not only instability, but how bad these kings tend to be. I mean, sure, there's the odd good one, but in the main, they are evil. And this can feed an anti-authoritarian stance. The self-interest of leaders makes us suspicious of them and their motives. And we can become cynical about all authority. We prefer instead our own autonomy and independence. And we might even go as far as to say that this is precisely what this text in 1 Kings teaches us. This is the problem with the monarchy. The kings are no good. Democracy is so much better. Every few years there's an election and the people decide which group they want to rule over them for the next period. There's nothing to encourage murder plots. It's just a case of winning the people's vote to get elected. A democracy is a much better stable form of government than a monarchy. And it's peculiar then that God seems to prefer a monarchy. And maybe if God had his time over, he would see the wisdom of a democracy and change his mind. Although maybe then he'd be voted out. In our text that we're considering this morning, there are in fact two kingdoms going on. Okay. There's the kingdom of Judah and there's the kingdom of Israel. And that's because, if you recall, back in 1 Kings chapter 11, the 12 tribes have divided into two. So in the south, you have Judah and Benjamin. And in the north, you have the other 10. 
So the southern kingdom is called Judah, and the northern kingdom is called Israel. Now, when you first come across this, it can seem a little confusing, because we might think Israel is referring to all Israel, you know, all 12 tribes. Now, before the split, it did. You'd be right. But since the division, the Bible refers to the northern kingdom as Israel, and then the southern kingdom as Judah. And throughout the rest of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, we will have an account of the different kings that reigned in these two kingdoms. So there'll be 20 northern kings in about 200 years, and there will be 21 kings in the south over a period almost twice as long. And so a question as we go through each week is, where are we? Now, are we in the north, Israel, or are we in the south, Judah? The measure of the kings of Israel is Jeroboam. Jeroboam was, of course, the first king of the divided Israel. And he was the one that made the two golden calves. And Jeroboam becomes the negative standard by which all succeeding kings in the north are measured. They're either as bad as Jeroboam. So, for example, if you take a look at Nadab in chapter 15, verse 34. 15:34, Nadab did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. So Nadab here is described as as bad as Jeroboam. But there are some kings who are worse than Jeroboam. If you look to the end of our reading with Ahab in chapter 16, verse 30. 1630, and Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So under Ahab and Jezebel, Israel effectively becomes Canaanized. A house is built for Baal. An altar is constructed for Baal. And there Baal is served and worshipped by them. And the remainder of the kings of Israel details this reckless plunge into disaster for this kingdom. The southern kingdom of Judah will suffer the same blow. Judah too is guilty of idolatry, but that will be delayed for a century. The measure of the kings of Judah, I wonder if you spotted it, is David. David is the positive measuring stick for the kings of the south. And so as the image of Jeroboam always lurks in the background of the northern kingdom, well, so does the image of David in the south. And the kings are either contrasted with David or compared favourably with him. So take the contrast, uh, where the kings are contrasted with David. Have a look at the example of Abijam in 15 verse 3. 
15.3, and he walked, Abijam walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. That's the contrast. Or sometimes the kings are compared favourably with David. So if you look at the second king there, Asa, in 15.11, and Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. The significance of David is not simply that he was a model king, but that to him was given the promise. Never far from view is the divine promise to David. When Ahijah announced the division of the kingdom back in chapter 11, hope is held out for the southern kingdom because of David. So despite Solomon's sin, he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. 1 Kings 11 verse 32. Now the background of all this is, of course, 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's where God promises David a kingdom. And the striking thing about this kingdom is that it will be an unending kingdom. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, says God to David in 2 Samuel 7 verse 16. So even if one of the royal line does wrong, like Solomon, God promises not to reject the line like he'd done previously with Saul. God will keep the kingdom going forever. So what we're going to get as we go through in the weeks to come is a contrast between the south and the north. So there's the name of David in the south, and then you've got the instability of the northern kingdom, and all of that focus our attention on David and the foundational promise made to him. The name David shines in the text as a lamp in the darkness. For example, take King Abijah. Despite, despite Abijah's sins, look at what God did. 15 verse 4. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. See, despite Abijah's sins, the Lord would not destroy Judah. Why? For David, his servant's sake. God had promised David to give him always a lamp for his sons. All of this is consolidated for us if we pay careful attention to who the kingdom is passed on to in each of the kingdoms. All the kings of Judah are in the Davidic line. So Solomon is the son of David. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon, 1521. Abijam is the son of Rehoboam, 1531. Asa is the son of Abijam, 15 verse 8. 
There's no dynastic change with subsequent kings. They're all Davidic. And with the Davidic line is the promise. But something quite different happens in the northern kingdom. Over the 20 northern kings, the dynasties in Israel will change, have a guess how many times? Ten times. It's nasty stuff. I mean, have a look at Nadab. So he is the son of Jeroboam. The line continues, 1525. He's of the same dynasty as the foundational king of Israel. But Basha, well, he wants to be king instead. He's of a different dynasty. He's the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar. So pick up with me the narrative from 1527. See what happens. Basha, so 1527, Basha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Basha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. For Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibbethon. So Basha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. So it's not that Nadab died and then Basha, his son, reigned in his place. Now, this is Nadab who is murdered by Basha in order to seize the throne. And just to make sure there's no reprisals, look at what Basha does, 1529. And as soon as he was king, he did what? He killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. Basha kills all the other members of Jeroboam's family. And this is just as Ahijah had said he would. Chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. The house of Jeroboam is now no more. The house of Issachar now rules. And this change of dynasty in the north will happen again and again and again. And it provides a foil for the southern kingdom and that continuing dynasty of David. As I conclude, it's important that we pause for a moment to think about kingship to feel the impact of this. Because on the one hand, democracy, that's the in thing. Because, at least at some level, it's thought that wisdom lies with the people. Two heads are better than one. How much more? 47 million heads. It's thought that there is more wisdom if you have a lot of people voting. But then again, you might just get more self-interest or the loudest voice. It doesn't guarantee justice and goodness. And on the other hand, people don't think much of a monarchy as having great power and influence over our lives. Yeah, they're very good at pomp and ceremony and waving, making the odd speech, but with very limited influence beyond that. And over and above them, well, we have our democracy. So when we come to a passage like this about God setting up a king, 
there's very little that connects with people that says, do you know, that's exactly what we want. We're aware that power tends to corrupt. We don't want anyone to have too much power. Tyranny rules otherwise. So we want some way to get rid of them. The argument is that too much authority is bad, better for democracy. But the analysis is incorrect. The problem is not too much authority, but the character of the ruler, the king. And this, of course, takes us back to the importance of creation and that, and that category of unfallenness and uncorruptness, of righteousness and of ruling in righteousness and justice. And I suspect that the analysis by our world is not morally neutral. Anti-authoritarian belief is of a piece with autonomy. It's a bid for independence and usurps God's right to rule his creation through his appointed king. When Jesus came, they killed him precisely because at some level they knew who he was. They knew that Jesus was God's legitimate ruler, and they wanted to rule for themselves. The irony is, is that they're the corrupt ones, whereas the king that God has enthroned rules in righteousness and justice and truthfulness and goodness. Let's pray, and I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have. Heavenly Fathers, as we reflect on the history of Judah and Israel and the succession of kings, please would we be spared from making further uh, moralistic um, uh, conclusions that this is why we don't want a monarchy. Father, I thank you that within it all, there is uh, the lamp of David and the promises that you have made to him, which give us great confidence that you will establish your king and that he will rule your kingdom as you rule. And therefore, Father, I pray that we would be confident in the truth that Jesus is now enthroned as your king and that we would be bold in bearing witness to him, uh, to trust him, and also to obey him as your legitimate ruler over your creation. We ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Okay. Do you know, uh, questions or comments? Do you know, um, in the day, when I did a, a youth talk on a camp, I did... Uh, that similar introduction about Harry's murder and pretty much all the kids believe me <laughs> so it was a uh, yeah we had to kind of like kind of just talk them down and say it was just the illustration so if you're thinking like is that true check your phone no Harry Harry's safely in America I don't know he might be is he so yeah Prince George is safe for the moment
Uh, Joel. Okay, thanks. So the question is, um, what is Baal? Is it general or specific? Um, I might have to come back to you on that one. I'm not sure my head's going to go. I mean, just, uh, we, we can find where he is. So in 1 Kings 16, um, so I think Baal is a specific um, idol, and he is an idol of the... I think he's the idol of the Canaanites. And so at the point at the end of 1 Kings 16 is the fact that, you know, they just embrace, embrace the gods of the, um, of the nations surround them in building a house for him. I mean, it's interesting because we've already had with Solomon. He builds a house for the Lord God as an altar. And you've got all of that. And so here you've got like a parody of that. Is that actually here is a false god of the nations and um, Ahab, the king of Israel, just um, goes hook, line, and sinker. And not only him, he takes all of Israel um, after him. So I think he's a specific god. I mean, there may be a case later on that he be a Baal becomes um, uh, metaphoric of all idols, but I, I'm not sure that's the case. Yeah. So, and probably because of the, the geography and that that is the immediate threat to them in terms of one of the reasons they were told to clear the land when they were given it of all the um, inhabitants was so that they then wouldn't worship their gods. So in many ways, this is, harks back to, you know, that, that's, that's still the case. So yeah, that's cool. Hannah. Yes, thank you. So why is David associated with the southern and not the northern? Um, this is where I, just, I hope I get anything wrong. So, Tom, correct me if I'm wrong. So, David is of the tribe of Judah. That's why. So, of the 12 tribes. And interestingly, I was chatting with Nathan about, well, and David and Allison a couple of weeks ago. We looked back up at, um, do you remember in Genesis where Jacob blesses his 12 sons, which would then form the 12 tribes. It'd be worthwhile going back to that at some point in terms of actually what we're expecting of the 12 tribes. But there with the blessing, the promise to Judah stands out as this is the tribe to watch. Then David is of the tribe of Judah. And then in 2 Samuel 7, the promises are made to David. And so that's kind of why Judah becomes, you know, that's where the lamp of David is. That's where the that's where, the, um, where we're expecting God to um, move and act, so to fulfill his plan. Is that right? Yes, um, Nikki.
Yes, very much so. So the question was, uh, in the south, David is the measuring stick. Um, is it because not only that David has the promise, but because he was, he was commended in terms of his rule? Yes, very much so. So in the north, Jeroboam, he's a baddie, and therefore he's the, you know, the fact that he's the measuring stick is not... Um, it doesn't bode well for Israel. Whereas in the south, David is upheld as a... Um, well, I mean, it's amazing. In verse 5, it says, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. So, yeah, the author of 1 Kings can speak very highly of David as a model king and that he ruled in righteousness and justice as God ruled. So, I, I mean, the way I put it together here is I put it the other way around in terms of, in the first instance, David is a model king because he was a good king. But then to push that further, actually the, the, the greatest significance of David is not just that he is a, a good king. So we're not just saying like, oh, Judah gets it. Is a bit, I'd rather live in Judah than Israel. Judah's a bit better. Because to be fair, you know, you only have the odd good king, but more the significance is, as you mentioned, that the promises are with David, and that's ultimately the hope. So when things like um, Abijam, he makes a mess of it, you might expect that that's going to jeopardise the king, uh, the kingdom of Judah. But then God says no, because I'm, I'm going to remain faithful to my promises. Now, at this point, the whole thing's not resolved because you just think, how is this going to be? How is this going to be answered? And it's not answered anytime soon because you know it all ends with them going into exile. And then you think, what are the promises? Jerusalem's not is, is crushed and burnt, and so we, there's a roller coaster of a ride in terms of how is it that 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 these promises made to David will be fulfilled. It's not that this line settles down to a a good list of Davidic-like kings, they are going to plunge into the... I mean, to be fair, they just don't learn from Israel. They're told to learn from Israel. Look at Israel, look what happened to them. But they don't, and therefore they also go into exile. But ultimately, it's, it's God's going to act on the basis of his promise, so that's where to, to put our light. Is that okay? Cool. All done? In which case... We are going to, but we're in, we're in One Kings for a lot longer, so we've got lots more to do. Looking forward to next week. Um, and we're going to sing When I Survey, um, and then we'll have a final reflection. <laughs>